if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, tonight we're going to look on about, we're going to look on the subject of preaching. Um, not because I've mastered preaching by any means, but it's an important topic. It's something that every person who comes and sits in a pew or a chair at a church should understand what is, what is it that they should be coming prepared to hear? And what is it that a preacher should be giving? And if we have time, I realize that I'm going to go through a lot of stuff. I've, I've heard the cardinal sin of any preacher is to stir up more snakes than you can shoot, and so I possibly might do that tonight. Um, and if we have enough time, I'm going to do a little Q&A after the message. So if you have a question, you can write that down on the side, and uh, if we have time, we're going to get to that. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. <coughs> that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Pray with me. God, we pray that tonight we would rest on the solid rock of Jesus, that you would show us what is sinking sand, that we cling to you. God, I pray in this moment that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain changes. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Um, a number of years ago, I was speaking at um, some youth conference, which speaking to youth is not my gifting, uh, but for some reason, I, I get asked from time to time to do that, and so I would go. And this conference was very similar to all the other conferences that I had spoken at, um, in which it was really loud, really energetic. Um, There's uh, a lot of a lot of lights. Um, the stage for the band, of course, had you know all the multicolored lights and all the, the gel lights and the smoke, you know, so you could see the beams coming through it. And uh, the, uh, the 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 words on the screen, of course, had the video images going on all behind it. Um, kind of made me a little dizzy. Um, and in the midst of all of it, uh, you had the worship leader come forward, and he said. Uh, just for a moment, I want you to try to remove every distraction from your mind and concentrate on Jesus. Just, just for a moment, just, just I want you to, and he pointed out, I said, I want you to forget about the lights. I want you to forget about the, the, the smoke. I want you to forget about all the people around you, and I want you to just concentrate on the Lord. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, it's not just me and the Lord, it's me and the Lord and a thousand people. And if, if you didn't want me to be distracted by all the lights, why did you bring them? If you didn't want me to be distracted by the smoke, why did you bring it? Is this like a test, you know, to see how well I can concentrate in the midst of all this distraction? You're going you're gonna to bring these things here and then tell me not to pay attention to them? And so it just got me thinking, well, why are these things necessary? Are they necessary for what we would call worship? 
Um, is that what worship is supposed to look like? Where do we get those ideas that worship needed to be that? Um, now, if you were to go to you know, some club on a Friday night, you're likely going to see the same thing that you see in many contemporary churches and many contemporary worship services. You're going to have uh, the, the same type of performance. You're going to have people pressing up against the stage, singing songs with hands raised high. And, and hopefully the difference, though, is that in a contemporary worship service, people's thoughts and their minds are about Jesus. Hopefully that, that is the difference. But the question is, is it okay? Is it okay that we do that? Is this how church should operate? Is it okay for the church to take what is a very effective worldly strategy and just incorporate it and then kind of throw in Christ? Is it okay for the church simply to look how the world looks and, and do maybe the marketing strategies that the world does, but, but somehow Christianize them, put God as the focus? Is that all right? We're just supposed to maybe do them better than the world does them, all for the glory of Jesus? And what about preaching? Well, what is preaching supposed to look like? You know, you can turn on the TV and you can get... Um, great advice from Dr. Phil. You can, uh, you can go to a news station and you can get your news from a, a, a really good anchorman. Is preaching supposed to be like that, just with a Christian spin? But it's, it's really just kind of help and information that I'm supposed to give to you and then tag Jesus onto it. Is, is that what preaching is supposed to be? What should it look like? What, what is preaching? Well, what is it that hopefully you prepare yourself for when you come here on a Sunday night? Now, there are a lot of places that you can go to in Scripture for an answer for this. Um, I think the best place is the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. It's not the only place, but I think it's, it's the best. It's here that the Apostle Paul clearly lays out what he has in mind when he talks about preaching. And what he so clearly sees as the inherent dangers of preaching within the church. It's also here in chapter 4, verse 16, that Paul says that he urges us to be imitators of him. And he's talking to the preachers, and he's talking to those who are listening to the preachers, and he says, I want you to imitate me in how I do this. So we need to understand how he does this. Now, there's a lot of similarities between Corinth and modern-day America, which is probably one of the reasons this is such a good passage on preaching. At this time that Paul wrote this, uh, Corinth was a very young city. It had a population of about 500,000, which was more than Athens. It was beginning to rise in prominence above Athens during this time. It was a port city. It was located in the Isthmus. Um, and so it had people from all different backgrounds, all different nationalities flooding there. It was a very diverse, powerful city. It was one of the few cities in the world that you could actually rise up the social ladder. Um, your social status was not fixed. Everything was new. Everything was for the taking. And so people became very obsessed with their social standing and how they could rise up that social ladder. 
And it's here, which we're going to look at next week when we hit Acts 18. It's here that Paul establishes a church, a small church, but a growing church. But this church is not immune to the culture that's going on in Corinth. They become obsessed with status, with their social standing. How can they rise up that social ladder and culture? Paul actually spent 18 months planting this church, which was a really long time for Paul to be in one place in the missionary journey. But apparently there was a whole lot that he had to work through before he felt comfortable enough leaving. Now when Paul came into Corinth, he had to be very careful because there was an expectation in the city as to what a public speaker should look like when they were coming to the city gates. At this time, there was a group of, of orators. They were called sophists, um, and they were the public speakers of the day. They were these self-proclaimed wise men who would enter into a city with great fanfare. They would give these speeches, and people were enthralled by it. You have to remember there's no TV, okay? I mean, that's the, that, no TV. They have to find ways to entertain themselves. And so they listen to a lot of speeches, and we have so many of these speeches have survived, and you can read them. But they would walk in, and literally hundreds and thousands of people would come to hear these different sophists as they came in to give their speeches. They had great physiques. Um, many of these sophists, they actually shaved all of their body hair, oiled themselves up, and went so they would shine in the sun and they would look like gods as they spoke. Well, the first thing that they would do when they entered the city is they would give a prepared speech that they had carefully prepared. And they would try to wow people with their wisdom, with their rhetorical skill. They would boast about their nobility and their power and and then after they did all of that, if they were good, and if they were really, really good, they could say, all right, y'all set the topic. Tell me what you would like me to speak on. And we have all these records of, of political speeches. Speak on the politics of the day. Speak on a certain flower that grows on this hill. And instantly, the sophist could just launch into this beautiful, flattering language on whatever subject was brought up to him. The rewards were great if you were a good speaker. If you were accepted into the city, and not all were, actually most were not, but if you, if you were, parents paid an incredible amount of money to have these sophists teach their children, for their children to become disciples of them. They would go completely underneath the leadership of this sophist. And they were very competitive with one another. There was a lot of backbiting in it. It kind of gives you uh, a little bit of hint when you hit 1 Corinthians 1 um, as to what the people are thinking when they're saying, I follow Paul. No, I follow Apollos. No, I follow Cephas. What are they talking about? They're treating them like these speakers whom they have to follow and commit to. People were in awe of them. Now it is crucial crucial to understand this kind of backdrop and the expectations these people had for Paul in order for you to understand how Paul viewed preaching and how he came to the Corinthian people. 
These people were expecting someone who would wow them. Show off to them. Had incredible speaking ability. Could persuade anyone. One that would give them uh, a great social standing and, uh, and respect among their peers. Um, it's one of, you know, churches still struggle with this all the time. Why is it when an athlete becomes a Christian, he's instantly put up behind a pulpit? Because the church is like, look, see, we have important people. They, they believe this message. Or if an actor becomes a Christian, you immediately throw them up. Why? Because the church is longing for some kind of social standing. Still do that. And here's the thing. When Paul went into Corinth, he could have been that. Because Paul was extremely educated, very intelligent. We saw that last week when he talked with the Areopagus, when he's talking with the, 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 uh, the smartest intellectuals of the day. He can hold his own. I mean, the man has already talked to rulers. He's already spoken to mobs. And he's done really well. So once again, in light of just kind of that backdrop, listen again to 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, when I came to you to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, I came to the anti-sophists. I didn't want to wow you. I didn't want to use my latest persuasive techniques to kind of trick you into believing the gospel. I didn't want to show you like my confidence and my smoothness and how I have all of this together before you. That's not how I came. When I was with you, I was scared. I shook like a leaf. He didn't use his means of persuasion here that he had at his disposal. And, and let me just tell you, as whenever you're speaking behind a pulpit, it's not that hard to manipulate. It's not. It's not that hard to tell an, an emotionally charged story and get you emotionally worked up. Or to tell a funny story and to entertain you or to tell a story that will make you feel really guilty so you will do it. It's not that hard to do that. These are persuasive techniques. Paul didn't use any of them. And he proclaimed Christ. He didn't want to be some preaching celebrity. Now why? In verse 5 is the key. He did all this in order that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, worldly wisdom, but in the power of God. 
that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Now notice Paul didn't say here that for him to come like a sophist would have been a sin. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say it would have been a sin if I had come and I had used all this. He didn't say that if I used some of those highly effective, persuasive techniques that that would have been wrong. He doesn't say that. He didn't say uh, that, that trying to wow the people would have, would have been an error or against God. He, he's, he's careful not to say that right here. But what he does say is that I didn't want you to be moved by those things and for your faith to rest on those things. I don't want any of that. If he was a worship leader, he would say, I, I don't want you to be emotionally moved because we had great lights, or, or we had the fog machine, or we had, we had this, the, the subwoofer bringing the chill bumps out to you. I didn't want you to be moved because of that. Not that that's wrong, but I didn't want you to be moved because of that. I didn't want you to, when you went home and you're thinking about it, to think, really? Did God meet me here? Or was it just all of this stuff? I didn't want that distraction. Paul says that these things can, worldly wisdom can produce a degree of faith. They can. Because faith can rest on worldly wisdom. Faith can rest on the power of God. There can be a degree of faith using those. It can produce them. But it, this faith that's based on the wisdom of man will not last will not last. Paul feared this so much. I think this is the reason he came, fear and trembling, because he knew he could put on a show. And he knew if he did that, people would be moved. But then it would rest on his that worldly wisdom and not on the cross. Now look at, look at verse, um, or go back three, three chapters. Go to verse 1. Sorry, you're in chapter 2. You can't go back three chapters. Go to chapter 1, verse 17. I think this is when he really puts this all to head. He, he brings such clarity here. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So relying on what Paul calls eloquent wisdom empties the cross of power. Let me tell you, that is strong language that Paul is using here. Very strong. Every preacher that I know of, I'm friends with lots of preachers, every preacher I know of wants the power of God to work their preaching. Everyone. I've never met somebody who's like, you know, I'm really, I just don't want the power of God at work. Or, or who doesn't long for that in their church. But where does that power of God come from? That's the question here. So right after verse 17, go to verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Go to verse 22. 
says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the weeks, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Now, every time, every time, Paul uses the phrase, the power of God in 1 Corinthians. It is anchored to the death of Jesus, the cross of Christ. Every time. Rhetoric has power. Worldly wisdom has power. Emotional manipulation has power. Rock shows have power in them. They don't have the power of God. The power of God comes through the proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is why the cross of Christ has to be central in all of preaching, or it's just not preaching. Jesus must always be there. If He's not, you empty the, you empty the cross of its power. Um, Paul says in uh, verse 2 of chapter 2, he says that he decided to know nothing among them except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then later, you know, he says um, the reason is that their faith might rest not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So once again, he determines to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? So that he might experience the power of God. They're linked together. And what Paul is saying here, gosh, I have to be so careful in how I say this. I'll give y'all questions later. What Paul is saying here is he has got to resist the urge from the pulpit to try and become relevant. To try to give out what is called relevant preaching. Re remember when a sophist would come into town and if he was really good, he would say, okay, you heard my speech. Now, you tell me what you want me to talk about. You guys, give me the topic, and I will give it to you. That's what Paul's alluding to here. He says, when I came to you, you're not going to tell me what I preached to you. You're not going to say, we need to hear this. We need to hear this. Uh, the topic is already set. And the topic is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There is no other topic, otherwise it's not preaching. And so when I come to you, that's it. Don't ask me to preach on other things because the agenda is already set. Preaching is always to be about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's always to be about the gospel. Which some of you um, might have a question, but it's a good one. All right. I hear you, but how does that play out? Really, how does that play out in preaching? <clears throat> because isn't a preacher also to uh, to preach on things like sin, you know, and uh, moral issues, marriage, giving, how we're supposed to help others live a good life? Isn't a preacher also supposed to preach on those things as well? And I will answer that with a yes, but. Yes, 
but you, know, you knew I had to. I, I've talked about the word but so many times in our sermons, and how it's such a crucial word in Scripture. Yes, I'm to preach on those things, but Jesus is still central. The cross is still central. Let me just maybe give you some examples. Let me, let me take giving, for example. As a pastor, I'm supposed to tell you you're supposed to give, okay? There's an offering box there. You guys, you should give, all right? Now, you know, there's a, there's a pastor, I use that term loosely, Creflo Dollar is coming to town. I don't know if you've heard. Um, he will be preaching at the BJCC this Friday. Um, he's pastor of, I wrote it down, the World Changer Church International. Has over 30,000 members. Already 7,000 tickets here in Birmingham have been sold um, for him coming to speak this Friday. Health, wealth, prosperity, gospel preacher, probably the worst of the worst. Um, I have actually heard him say, you know, Jesus uh, rode a donkey, nobody's ridden, you can drive a Cadillac, nobody's driven. Um, now, now, he is going to ask people to give to. Make no mistake, if you were to go to the BJCC this Friday night, he's going to say, you all need to give. Now, what's the difference between me saying you guys need to give and him saying you guys need to give? What's the motivation behind that? What's the undergirding or the foundation behind that? Let me tell you mine. Let me tell you Paul's. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says to the Corinthians, I want you to excel in the grace of giving. He said, I want you to excel in this. And in verse 9 he says, why? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. So that you and his poverty might become rich. Why should he give? Because of the gospel. Look at marriage. Paul has a lot to say about marriage. Um, what should marriage look like? How are husbands and wives supposed to act? Um, but look how he describes marriage in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay? Christ crucified is the model for how we are to love our wives. That's, that's what being a good husband is about. It's about the gospel. Look at serving. We know we're supposed to serve one another in humility. Why? Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that we're to serve one another. We're not just to look after our own interests. Because Jesus, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. He became a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Why should he serve? Because Christ was crucified. When the Corinthians are fighting over communion, of all things, fighting over the Lord's Supper, Paul has to remind them. He says, don't you know that every time we, we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We preach Christ and him crucified every time we take of this meal. So he's always telling the reason we do these things, the undergirding, the foundation, and the power to do these things comes in the gospel. And all good preaching should do that. Even when the preacher is addressing whatever moralistic, relevant issue is there, it is always anchored 
not just anchor, the foundation of it and the strength of it is in the gospel. Good preaching will not rob the cross of its power. As a preacher, I, I, I must never depend on, on, on talents or skill in order to move people. A church should never depend on, a, on its ability as a church to put on a good show in order for people to be moved to worship. That isn't where the strength comes. That's, that robs the cross of its power. And so the challenge for me as a pastor and for us as a church is to believe in the power of the gospel alone. That we don't have to add to it. We don't have to kind of fluff it up. We don't have to put makeup on it. We don't have to somehow make it pretty for everybody. We don't have to, you know, switch or bait and switch to get people in here and somehow trick them into the gospel. All we have to do is be clear. This is it. And then the power of the gospel comes to work. Paul says this. Let me just end here and we'll have a brief time of Q&A. Romans 1.16. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Pray with me, Lord. God, I pray for me and for our congregation that we would practice what we preach. Lord, I pray we would never rob you, rob the cross of its power. We would never for a moment think that it is not enough. God, show us the myriad of ways that that plays out into how we operate as a church, how I am to preach, how everyone here is to listen. Through your spirit, help us that in this. We pray this in the name of Jesus. We've got time for just a few questions. Um, you know, when Paul would write a letter and he would send it with somebody, they would go and they would read the letter to the church, and then afterwards the messenger would be like, so what questions do you have? Paul's talking all about this, so what are the questions? So you, you, you've heard the sermon, but what questions do you have about this? Do what part should sermons play in the spiritual life of you? Like, I mean, main source of nutrients, and you're like, the, the question is, well, what part should the sermon have in the main life, the spiritual life of the believer? It, it has a very important part. Um, preaching, there is an element of teaching and prophecy. Both. Um, because my job as a pastor, uh, for one, I, I'm to be a good steward of the word. A good steward means that I'm to know the word of God and I'm to know my congregation and I'm to know what food they need. So for what situation, I need to know what to feed them. And, and so that's, that's very important. Um, and then the, there's a prophetic element, not always. Sometimes preaching and teaching are used interchangeably in the New Testament, but it can have a prophetic moment. There are times when I'm preaching 
And I'm, I'm looking at my notes, and God says, abandon that. You need to address this. That's a prophetic moment. That's the Spirit of God saying, you need to do this. That is a very important life in the church. Um, does it replace every day? And so, yeah, I hope we're always people with the book. You know, I love it when I act, when I come here and I say, hey, y'all turn to 1 Corinthians 2, and I just read all these Bibles. It's, it's music to ears. So that needs to be your bread and butter. Um, but God puts pastors for a reason. Anybody else? Joel? Um, you, you might have said it already before, and I might have missed it, but... Notice in verse 6 that talks about... Chapter 2? Yeah, chapter 2. Um, the rulers of this age. And I was wondering, is that is that a reference to the sophists, or are they somewhere else? Yeah, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age. Uh, I, I, it would certainly be an allusion to that. Okay. Absolutely. absolutely. You know, now that you, I, I just gave you scratch the surface on kind of the sophists, read through First and Second Corinthians again. Read through First Thessalonians chapter 2. He talks about he, he didn't come with flattery of speech or pretext of greed. You know, you, you read and you'll, those things begin popping to you if you understand that. Or especially even when you get to the latter end of uh, 2 Corinthians and he talks about those super apostles who came. Um, those people who had outgrown Paul were much better in every way than him. Anybody else? speech and my message, what were they? Well, they were a demonstration of the spirit and the power. He's, he's tying this, when he was speaking the word and he's addressing Christians, he'll later appeal to that. He's like, y'all came to know the Lord through my preaching. Um, and he says, uh, I'm, a, I'm a father to you guys. <laughs> when I came, the spirit came in power and came to believe. So I think that's what he's alluding to there. It's like, now that they're getting embarrassed about it. I mean, later they will reject Paul. They reject him. Um, and they'll say, they start criticizing him more and more. You know, Paul, you're mighty with a pen, but your bodily presence stinks. And they'll say that in 2 Corinthians. Um, and he begins losing them. Anybody else? Joe, would you say that most like modern evangelism is based on uh, emotional manipulation, and that's become a real problem because... It's really tricking people to feeling something that they might not necessarily actually be feeling, or is that sort of what you're getting at with this message? Well, it's not what I'm getting at. Um, I do think that's there. Um, and, I, I mean, let me just go ahead and say, I don't have any church in mind when I'm preaching this. Or I don't. I have gone to two churches in 15 years. This one and the last church I served at. So, so I don't even know really what's out there besides what I just read. Um, but I do know a number of the techniques that are there um, would fall under like what Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 2, deceptive, and which is something the sophists would do. I hope no church. I, I hope you haven't been involved in the leadership. Let, let me just throw one out. You know, typical, hey, we're having a Super Bowl party. 
No, really? Yeah, we're just going to all come and watch the Super Bowl and everybody comes. I was like, hey, before we show this Super Bowl, I've just got a quick little message for you. And it's a bait and switch. You trick people. Now let me share the gospel. You're, you're preaching under the, this, this false pretext there. And I do think there's a lot of that that goes on. Or a judgment house in which you can scare a person to Jesus. I mean, I went to a judgment house one time when I was in college, and I prayed the sinner's prayer twice. I'm like, you know, gosh, just in case, Lord. And so there is that. Once again, God can use those. Faith can rest on those to some degree. But Paul, Paul is saying, all right, let's, let's let it rest on the gospel, which has lasting power. So his job was to be very clear. Uh, when Paul, and we're looking at this next week, when Paul's going to Corinth, it's the only time he had an axe. He's so scared because he knows how the people want him to behave. Jesus actually has to appear to him and say, don't be scared when you're going there. And I don't think it's a scare because, like, you know, what are they going to do to me? I think it's, it's a scare that he knows he can win the crowd. He can do it. But it's a scare, like, I can't do that. Am I, am I really going to trust the message that I, that I believe? Anybody else? Yeah. I feel like this passage encourages some of the fields we can marry the ministry of evangelism or service for The question is, how, how do you think this passage encourages somebody who is, is weak in an area like evangelism or, or preaching? I think it should be great encouragement. Uh, one of the most powerful sermons I've ever heard was by, it was a college student who got up and he stuttered through the whole thing, scared out of his mind to, to say the words he was going to speak. And it wasn't anything revolutionary, it wasn't some new spin, it was just very straight up, and the power of God came. It's like the Spirit of God, the Spirit lives to glorify Jesus. So if you clearly present Jesus, the Spirit of God's like, there's a great time for me to glorify Jesus and to make him known, and so he's going to come and do that. But sometimes the Spirit's like, all right, where's my chance? You know, Jesus isn't being clearly presented. There's so much distraction going on. Because I think somebody with very nominal, what we would call gifting, present Jesus. And we've looked at that, you know, the, uh, the gospel, the Evangelion, the, the power of it is not in the messenger. You're a jar of clay holding a priceless treasure. Last question, Mark. Uh, going back to the use of the word relevance, um, when is, you know, how do you decipher when is an appropriate time to use anecdotes or analogies when I'm either sharing the gospel with a non-believer or even just encouraging and talking to other believers with um, with this. Yeah. Uh, the, the question is, I think, when, when is an appropriate time to, uh, to use your illustrations, or I know you love metaphor, um, and, and things like that, and, and talking to an unbeliever. And, and I would say, I mean, that's, that's fine. You, you're doing that one-on-one is great. That's, that's going to be slightly different than preaching here. Um, I've always heard it as a preacher, I think it's Charles Spurgeon who said this, you know, illustrations can be windows that shed light, um, but don't build like a crystal cathedral, you use crystal cathedral, you know, but you, you don't do that, which is nothing but an endless string of illustrations. Um, and, and what I feel so much in preaching I've listened to is a preacher telling you that you have to believe this, telling you that God is great, telling you these things, but never actually shows you. Never actually, you know, I don't want to be told this is important. I don't want to be told God is great. Show me in the text. Point to it. 
There's your power. There's your authority. Not through whatever illustration you throw. Um, good questions. And y'all can ask more questions afterwards. Um, but I wanted to stop there.